0: Thomas, so you, you recorded two weeks ago, first episode of our mini-series, right? You interviewed yep. Professor Tommy Makula talking about cancer. Now, ask me why I think this episode will be better than the previous one.
1: Why do you think this episode will be better than the previous one?
0: Well, because this episode will be about treatments. And I like treatments. This episode will give us some optimism. So let's get ready for treatments. The science Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Science Basement Podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Giuliano.
1: And I'm your co host, Tomas.
0: And this is the second episode of our ICANN mini series where we talk about cancer and where cancer research is going. Now ICANN is an exciting new research platform based in Helsinki, a national flagship project aiming to make discoveries for new cancer treatments. In our previous episode, we interviewed Professor Tommy Makela about what cancer is and what we know and what we don't know about it. Today we have Professor Sirpa Leppa, head physician at the University of Helsinki Hospital Cancer Center, Professor of Oncology and Group Leader at the Lymphoma Biology and Survival Research Group at University of Helsinki. Professor Sir Palepa, thank you for being here today. How are you? Uh,
2: I'm fine. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited.
0: So if I understood correctly, you work in what is defined as translational cancer research. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, uh, I am a clinician, medical oncologist Mm -hmm. by training. But then in addition to that, uh, as, as you already mentioned, I'm uh, a group leader uh, and uh, we we really want to understand uh, why some treatments work and how they work and what can we do better and, and what should we not do.
0: Uh, now, of course, uh, in the previous episode, we had talked about the general concept of cancer. So for our listeners, if you have missed that episode please go and check that out to get a very brief understanding of what cancer is but would you mind giving us a very brief overview of what this disease is about what is cancer
2: it is uncontrolled growth of uh, cells derived from uh, whatever uh, tissues they can be derived from uh, epithelia or they can be derived from uh, muscles or neurons or lymphocytes Uh, my favorite disease is lymphoma
0: your favorite disease is lymphoma. Okay, that's an unusual sentence. We'll ask you about that later on. Yeah. Okay.
2: Okay, but uh, what what is uh, common in 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 this is that uh, usually the normal cells they just uh, grow as long as they need to grow, and we need them, and then they uh, they the growth is uh, controlled. Whereas in cancer, it's uncontrolled growth, and uh, also what is important uh, in in the defi- definition of cancer is that it doesn't stay still uh, localized but it d- does move and metastasize to different organs and and causing also massive problems because of that so two different things un- uncontrolled growth and uncontrolled uh, movement wherever the nasty cells want to go
0: yeah so it seems to me like you list some of the tissues where it can happen. It seems to me, basically, most of the tissues can eventually one day uh, develop a tumor, a, a cancer, or a tumor. So, yeah. cells that go they go rogue and just start dividing and replicating out control.
2: Yeah, but but I, I think one more thing, uh, mm. it really matters who is looking at this because I think basic basic scientists, molecular bio, biologists, they think that it's it's DNA damage for example there's a mutation and and then uh, that uh, results in differences and challenges then clinicians they just think that it's it's a horrible disease that we have to somehow try to stop growing and and get uh, rid of that so let's let's put it that way so it's yeah, uh, yeah. And, and then of course hematologists they think differently they they are treating uh, blood cancers and, and then medical oncologists mostly mostly solid tumors and, and so it's uh, very much dependent what how you are looking at this uh, issue.
0: As I said at the beginning of the episode, the reason why I'm very excited about this episode is that we'll be talking about actually the treatments. Um, so, you know, just to give us hope on what scientists are doing and what we'll be doing in the future to to treat, to to cure this uh, terrible but fascinating disease. What treatments do we have today?
2: Uh, yeah, we have uh, and have had for a very long time, of course, surgery. It's mm-hmm. one of the most important uh, So just treatments. removing
0: the tumor with a knife, yes. basically. Yes, okay. that's what it
2: is. And then uh, we have everything uh, around surgery uh, that we can do to improve the outcome of, of, of the surgery. For example, radiotherapy. So radiotherapy is, is another type of therapy, which is uh, localized therapy. Uh, and that can be given uh, uh, alone as such or or uh, it can be uh, given after uh, surgery or it even can can be given before surgery. And then, of course, we have uh, all all drugs, uh, pharmacological therapy, many different approaches. Uh, there is this classical chemotherapy, old standard. But uh, increasingly more, we also have biological drugs. Some of them are very well targeting and, and targeting cancer cells. Some of them actually don't uh, target cancer cells, but even, for example, just boost uh, our immune system to work better. So the, it's, it's actually very exciting and, and new, new drugs uh, approved every year in in different cancer areas
1: City city question but i mean we've heard about chemotherapy nowadays like relatively often but how how did we come up with with that like it's not it's not mm. often that we think of like it, it's a weird disease and how to treat it sounds like a yeah complicated solution to to come up with with that at yeah, least
2: not, not a silly question at all i actually tell this story to medical students because just i think it's an exi- exciting piece of history uh, how chemotherapy was originally invented comes uh, go, goes back to second world war so it's actually not so old surgery and radiotherapy are older chemotherapy uh uh, the first observation that chemotherapy might, might be useful was, was because uh, of Second World War in, in Italy, uh, in Bari. Uh, there was a ship where uh, they, they had stored chemical weapons, uh, which was not, uh, not allowed. But anyway, they had it there. Then there was an explosion and uh, what happened was that many, many hundreds of, of soldiers died because of that. And when uh, then it was examined what ha- actually happened, it was noticed that uh, the lymph nodes of those soldiers, soldiers had uh, gone necrosis so and, and really uh, shrinked in size and that then uh, probably ring a bell for some I- investigators and they thought we should try to, to test this uh, agent uh, for uh, patients with lymphomas. And, and then they did that uh, and it worked. And, and so was the first chemotherapeutic chemothera- agent discovered for lymphoma patients. And actually the lymphoma patient then later on cured by using that drug. So I think it's of course it's it was an accident but somehow uh, there were also good consequences because of that
0: yeah you know, one of the one of the few cases when a, a terrible event in war which is terrible itself actually eventually ended up in a, in, a, in, a, in a in a in an interesting and useful discovery
2: yes uh, then of course then there are many many different chemotherapeutic agents nowadays but the, the they the whole point uh, with those are that they they are directed to to dividing cells so how they usually work is is that the the action is is to uh, to to stop uh, cells to divide so it, it causes dna damage and 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 results in that the the cell is no longer capable of dividing
1: and well now that you mentioned these uh these treatments that, they, like, that we're using now like they seem to be pretty, pretty good in many cases, and they stop the cell cycle from happening. And that kind of controls the growth of some tumors. But what are the limitations that these, these treatments have? Like in some, some cancers seem to be, uh, seem to have like a very good survival rates, um, but what's, what's missing from, uh, from the treatments that we have now.
2: In some, uh, some, uh, malignancies, they work very well and uh, can, can be given uh, with a curative intent. But then we still have uh, many disease, uh, diseases where uh, they don't work at all, even the chemotherapy, or if uh, we give chemotherapy, which, as I already said, it kind of works in a generalized manner, killing dividing cells, uh, but it also kills normal healthy cells, so uh, if you use high doses of, of those drugs, there will be a toxicity issue. So that is one, one challenge uh, and a limiting factor for using those drugs. But even so, even if we talk about uh, new promising drugs and, and novel uh, therapies, they can also uh, work not optimally for all patients, but probably for a subgroup patient. So what is important is, is that we somehow can identify uh, the patients who, who do benefit. Uh, in other words, what I wanted to say is, is, I think the biggest limitation at the moment is, but also uh, a challenge uh, is, is to identify optimal therapy that has the best efficacy uh, without excess to excess toxicity.
0: No, I think I think I understand. So what I understood is the fact that the apart from the toxicity that uh, many um, these treatments carry and you mentioned chemotherapy right which targets every dividing cell. So mm-hmm. of course cancer cells which divide by like by definition but also other cells in our body which are you know normally divide and should divide. Um, and of course I same goes I assume for radiotherapy and I mean surgery is a surgery of course. Plus as you mentioned um, some therapy would work for some patients and wouldn't work for other patients, uh, which I guess highlights the heterogeneity of this disease, I would assume. So did I understand correctly that we are not sure what, like, why some treatments work and some don't? Is there yes. any case where we know or we, we don't know at all?
2: Well, there are some examples where there is a very specific mutation mm. uh, in a tumor, that can be targeted. Okay. Uh, those uh, examples exist, but they are quite rare. But mm. majority of the uh, cancers, they don't have specific mutations to be targeted. And even then uh, it, you would maybe expect from, from the biology that uh, you could use some kind of targeted drugs. They never work 100%, it's not, not mm. for all patients. So I think what what is really important is to, to, to do this uh, work that often pharma actually doesn't doesn't do try to identify the patients who benefit I understand. And it's the same with, uh, with also with new biological drugs. so yeah. you it's not they are not working for everybody, but they are certainly working for some some uh, patients and those patients we have to identify.
1: Well, we start delving into the area of um, targeted therapy and uh, more personalized medicine, I guess.
2: <laughs> yeah, and uh, and translation. I think this is all translation because that is uh, there to help <laughs> help to to kind of pick up pick up the right uh, tools uh, and and take them to the clinic. So that I think is also what what probably we should talk about here today.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Translational cancer research, which I understand, if I understand correctly, is this uh, process of taking new discoveries, uh, new approaches that are developed in a laboratory and turn them into therapy. Did I understand correctly? Yes. Yeah, Uh,
2: it is uh, really about taking uh, having a scientific discovery in the laboratory and And taking that discovery to the clinic and and translate uh, this discovery into the information uh, that can can move therapies forward. That's what I think it is.
0: So this would I assume lead to new treatments, right? Like
2: Not necessarily new treatments. it It can be a biomarker study also okay for example uh and and that is uh, helping uh, us to get closer to the the problem that i already mentioned the optimal therapy for for the patients who who actually benefit
1: and what does the translational process look like so how do you go from from the lab to a commercialized Mm -hmm. or a validated uh therapy what are the steps in between in the middle
2: well, if I just go one step back and and uh think about it when uh the when there is a basic uh research researcher, he or she is looking at the questions related to how cancer cell works or or what is happening in in inside cell but then uh, the this translational research uh aims uh to take what what uh was learned in basic research and then trying to apply this. Uh, in the de- development of solutions to medical problems. So that is kind of a general uh, way of thinking. But there, then in order to do that, you you have to, to go to the step further and, and start uh, to study the efficacy and, and also uh, adverse events uh, in, in humans. Uh, and that is what the clinical trials are for.
0: So we have the preclinical parts and then the clinical part and clinical part is in humans, I understand. So the preclinical, uh, I assume is it, it's in, in laboratory, how, what's more or less, like briefly, what's preclinical and uh, how then we turn and transition to clinical?
2: Yeah, so preclinical is everything, uh, basic research that is happening in the lab. It can be examining uh, the Problem that, or or the the project that you have in in, for example, cell culture, or then later on uh, in animal studies, but everything that is before uh, entering into the clinical part, which is then doing uh, research in humans.
0: So preclinical is everything that is not humans.
2: Uh, well, it can be humans because it can be human cells studied in the context of the laboratory, but not... Good point.
0: Okay. (laughs) Okay, so can we say that preclinical is everything that does not involve patients? Yes, that we can say. Okay. Okay. So now we turn into clinics and clinical studies. So we're dealing with patients. How does that work? How do clinical trials work and how do you get Mm -hmm. into it?
2: So when you have a package, a preclinical package ready... (laughs) To, to be uh, then asked this question, uh, what, what happens when you use, use the drug uh, in, in patients. You will have to ask permission or make, make a proposal, which is then uh, analyzed or, or uh, addressed in ethics committee. So it has to be ethically uh, adequate study that is very important. And that also is is coming from uh, Second World War. uh, And why and all these uh, rules and regulations that I I think they are very, very important. uh, And
0: I mean, you can't just Grab some patients and give them the first thing you (laughs) you think of. Of course,
2: actually, what was that was done in in... yeah. No, I understand.
0: (laughs) We don't want to go back there. So you have to show to the ethical committee that you have reasons to think that this is something worth trying. I I
2: assume yeah. And and what what that includes also very detailed description uh, in writing patient. consent so they also have to there has to be a description of the all study procedures what what is what what is done for them the, how many times different blood tests are taken and what is given and what is the schedule and also estimated risks and uh, benefits and uh, those kind of things but from the bureaucracy point of view it's the ethics committee who is is then giving permission to go on And then there is medical agency, that's the other part, who is then estimating the the investigational medicinal product, whether it's okay and and what are all the different procedures that are related to this uh, medicinal product and whether it is okay to to start the trial. Then uh, comes the clinical trial part.
1: Um, and in this part, like, how is it divided? Like, with COVID, we kind of got um, a bit of a glimpse in terms of the order and yeah. that sort of thing. But um, if I understand correctly, there are four phases of the clinical trials. Well, yes. the zeroth one being preclinical data. Yes. What does each phase do? Like, what question is each phase trying to answer?
2: Yeah, the first one is phase one. Uh, and and that it can be the first time ever uh, that the investigational product is, is or com- compound is given to humans. So it's, then it's called uh, first in human trial. And their uh, aim is always to try to find uh, about side effects and what happens to the body. In other words, what, what we are looking for is to identify the dose that the uh, human subjects are tolerating and and identify uh, the maximal uh, or or dose-limiting toxicity, which means how much uh, drug is uh, tolerated. And and phase one trial is always a small trial, uh, often about 20 patients uh, in the beginning. And if then uh, nothing, too harmful uh, is uh, found, then uh, this dose that has has been uh, determined uh, can be explored further in in a subsequent phase two trial. Uh, Phase two trial uh, is uh, looking uh, more about uh, side effects and also starting to look uh, more about the efficacy first time. So often in phase one, uh, level uh, the the responses or efficacy is not uh, the main point, but the dose. But then, if then at the phase two level uh, the, the the adverse events are not uh, too uh, difficult and there starts to be some uh, uh, responses, then uh, the most important uh, from the marketing point of view is the phase three uh, level where it's often uh, or almost should be uh, com- comparing uh, this new compound to the standard of care. And, and there, uh, what is done is, is it, that is often done in, in a randomized fashion. Do you know what is a randomized trial? Or what, what does the random randomization mean?
0: If I remember correctly, randomized trial will be uh, the case where the patient does not know uh, whether they're taking the treatments or the placebo, whether there is a placebo, and a double-blind uh, randomization means that not even the physician knows what drug they are giving to the patient, but only the researchers uh, upstream. Yeah. Did I get it right? Yeah, the
2: not exactly uh, the randomised. You can be it can be open, open randomised. So both uh, the patient and doctor knows. But but, okay. but but they cannot decide, so ah, like a lottery. Uh, mm, mm, uh, mm, but then if it's placebo controlled and if, mm. if it's double blinded, then mm-hmm. nobody knows except for okay. somebody, <laughs> but not the doctor okay. or, or <laughs> the patient. But uh, phase, phase three trials often include several hundred, even thousand patients. And, and there are, there it's important to do like power calculations and expectations uh, uh, during the uh, trial design that how many uh, how big difference is expected to be seen and then calculate the number of patients that they needed to show that difference. So it's actually a lot of statistics that are required there and expectations that then have to be proven uh, right or wrong.
0: So it, tell me if I got it right. So we have, of course, phase zero, which is the pre, preclinical that you mentioned already. So not in patients. Then we have phase one, which, as far as understood, checks mostly the safety dose, of the
1: yeah,
2: drugs. So, and those, yeah. toler, uh, maximal tolerance And dose, dose,
0: yes, maximal, yeah. And then you have phase two, which is still looking at side effects, but also looks at the actual...
2: A little uh, bit look starting to look at the response
0: the response so the expected effect and then you have phase three which is basically a larger scale of phase two seems to me because you said it's bigger and
2: but it is comparing uh to the standard of care Ah,
0: of course because phase two is compared to nothing
2: often often sometimes you can do also small randomized phase twos but but the the real randomization is at the level of phase three
0: so phase two answers does it do at all what we were expecting in phase three answers the question, is it better than the treatments we already yes. have? Did I answer yeah. correctly? Um, Excellent.
2: And then there is one more uh, level. So there is phase four and that is after the drug has been approved. It has already shown efficacy and it has been, uh, uh, licensed. And at that level, post-marketing level, uh, the trial, uh, aims uh, to find out, uh, of course, more about the side effects when more patients are treated and safety and then uh, potential long-term risks and and benefits. And then how does it work in, in, uh, let's say, almost like a routine clinical practice. And there are examples uh, where uh, originally approved uh, drug actually has been withdrawn because it didn't then in long longer term uh, follow-up show enough efficacy.
0: So not necessarily if a drug passes phase three not necessarily it means it's 100% successful
2: then? Or it it can be some it can be given some kind of conditional approval Mm. and then it can be withdrawn. And this is very challenging, all this step, if we go back to the lab and think how many compounds are tested. It can be thousands. And then uh, among those thousands, only a few enter uh, into the phase one trial level. And then I actually looked at this a little bit from the literature and uh, it's very much dependent where you look, look this for. But it's at least based on on some sources it was three to, to four percentages uh, from from the compounds that are tested at phase one level that actually enter to the marketing oh wow so it's very small
0: okay so like three to four percent mm-hmm.
2: but then uh if we then do it in, in a better way and use these biomarkers mm-hmm. that we already discussed mm-hmm. so more yeah. uh, include translation then it, that the percentage of the uh, the success rate is much better. It it comes up to twenty percentage.
1: And now that you've mentioned these these approaches, like what what are you testing in uh, in in Aikana? like what are new approaches that are that you're trying to translate into into the clinic?
2: I can, uh as it is it is called uh, also kind of precision medicine approach. So I think at least how I see it is to, to try to, to provide a more understanding, uh, particularly that uh, biomarker level, what, what is uh, and, and that is really related to profiling, profiling different tumors and, and trying to identify then from those tumors, of course, more uh, and, and new targeted vulnerabilities. let's put it that way. Or, or then identify something that has not yet been discovered by, because it's broad profiling at the level of uh, mutations, at the level of uh, gene expression, and also at the level of tumor microenvironment. So that is one of the main goals. But it's also a lot of other things, trying to, to take a patient's uh, wishes uh, into account and trying to then make these uh, discoveries uh, to the benefit of the patient. So it is a translational approach, a big one.
0: Just to understand, uh, because you mentioned the word, this word often, biomarker. Uh, so did I understand correctly? what you're looking at is specific features, some specific flags, molecular flag, that identify that very specific tumour. Did I understand correctly?
2: Yeah, it can be to identify tumors or identify uh, genomic or or tumor microenvironmental or whatever whatever aberrations that there are mm. that are somehow uh, guiding us to target therapies uh, better. And this is what we already also discussed uh, previously. Is that uh, often often when we give uh, treatments it's too broad population of the patients uh, or it's it's uh, it can be all breast cancer patients Uh, whereas maybe maybe certain uh, drugs would work uh, for a subgroup of breast cancer patients but in addition that they could maybe work also for uh, other cancer types if it was tested so We can hopefully find new ways uh, to target something that has not yet been discovered. Quite traditionally, uh, uh, when when new cancer uh, treatments are developed, they are very much like, uh, thought, okay, breast cancer, and that's it, instead of looking broader.
1: And do you have any examples of biomarkers that can be looked at, either classical biomarkers or more novel, uh, newer techniques that are being used?
2: Well, one very good classical biomarker has been HER2 protein, uh, which is on, on uh, breast cancer cells. And, uh, and it used to be if a patient had a breast cancer, which was HER2 positive, it used to be bad prognosis. For the patient, but since since the Herceptin trastuzumab, which is the HER2 targeting antibody, was discovered and started to use, uh, then it actually changed changed the prognosis for those patients. So they are no longer having bad prognosis or among the worst. And and I think that is a classical <laughs> uh, way of of seeing how how identification of a biomarker and and then starting to target that one can change the outcome of the, the big group of patients. Uh, so that is molecular. But then there are other other type of uh, ways also to, to look at this. Now, what is very much popping up, up right now is, is one 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 example is tumor microenvironment. We now have a lot of new drugs targeting uh, tumor microenvironment, trying to boost immune response and, and trying to activate, for example, T-cells uh, to, to attack the cancer cells more efficiently that is coming. And there we need to uh, identify new new ways to identify the patients who will benefit. And then I think the third uh, thing that is very exciting right now is, is the circulating tumor DNA that can be Used uh, measure uh, tumor DNA from uh, blood, and uh, just measure either the amount, which is based on on, on DNA from uh, tumors, because it's uh, the what we actually measure is mutations, but that can be quantified and and used either uh, as a progn- prognostic factors or even to to then uh, understand uh, if the the disease is responsible for targeted drugs or if if there is a mutation coming and 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 the, the that can that information can be used to to stop treatment when when it's no longer working yeah
0: so this circulating tumor DNA is it's, it's like an indicator of, indicator of, of of the presence of the tumor is it just DNA that is released by the tumors in the bloodstream yeah or is it yeah, okay. and it is uh
2: yeah it's it's uh, can be used as a surrogate m- marker for tumor burden but it is uh-huh. uh, even I, I think it's one of the best in many different cancer types not just one uh, as a prognostic factor so the more tumor re- derived DNA you have in the circulation the the worse is the prognosis but but then you can also target different mutations from from just by taking one, Blood sample, which makes diagnostics more uh, easy than than taking the tissue from the tumor, the biopsy.
0: Because you don't need to take the tissue from the tumor, yes. which might be difficult to access. Yes. Whereas you just grab it mm-hmm. from the blood. Mm-hmm. That's that's a, that's a very good. And some good. sometimes if, cool. if the tumor
2: is located in a, very deeply in the body, it yeah. actually, can be yeah. avoided those uh, those uh, tissue biopsies.
0: That's 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 an, like very fascinating news. So well, now we would really ask, like, really be interested in knowing what are you specifically working on?
2: Well, I am a lymphoma physician.
0: Okay, wait there. Now remember, you mentioned at the beginning of this episode that lymphoma is what the most the, the very interesting disease. Most exciting. Sure. Most exciting disease, right? Now, let's explain this sentence. What makes lymphoma the most exciting disease?
2: Well, it's a, it's extremely heterogeneous disease, first of all. There, there are at least 70 different uh, lymphoma subtypes that can be identified. And uh, some of them can be treated with a curative intent. So that is, of course, exciting. Some of them are, cannot not be treated like that. Well, even even before the new drugs were uh, available, I, I somehow thought that this is this is my disease <laughs> of interest. Difficult to say why why exactly like that.
0: It sounds like you, what interests you say is very very difficult. It means like you mentioned, it's very heterogeneous. Like it, it sounds very challenging.
2: Yeah, but it is all, uh, uh, at the same time it is aggressive, but at the same mm-hmm. time it can be handled. So okay. and and then just to 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 see how how sick the patients are when they start therapy and and then how grateful they are when you actually see them uh, or make the the drugs to work. And now now these uh, these lymphomas we are really experiencing exciting times because there are so many novel drugs that can be targeted. For example, if you have heard about CAR T-cell therapy, those are now available for lymphomas as well as by specific antibodies. So there are a lot of, lot of things that is right now ongoing.
0: Uh, okay, now we can <laughs> allow you to finish your sentence and what you're working on. Thank you for to explain to us your in- academic interest in the disease. So, lymphomas, what are you doing about it?
2: We are treating the patients in clinical trials. And we do this together uh, with our Nordic colleagues. So it's an international collaboration. And then we do, and it's an investigation-initiated trial, which is a little bit different from company-sponsored trials. So we treat the patients, we collect all biological material that we can imagine. So tumor tissue, and then this uh, blood, these blood samples, and then all, all possible clinical information that we can uh, imagine. And then we go to the lab, and, and then we analyze those tissues. We carefully look at the tumor. But now, uh, as I already mentioned, this circulating tumor DNA, we also measure that one. And then we correlate the findings with the, with the clinical data. Uh, both uh, adverse events and uh, then uh, responses uh, follow up data and then we learn a lot uh, about what what is for example the molecular profile for the patients who are are cured with these drugs or who are not and then we can go back uh, and 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 back to the clinics again and and do another trial and target the therapy better than the first time. So we actually are going a circle back and forth, clinic, laboratory, clinic, and, and uh, learning in that way.
0: Did I get this straight? So you first, um, so you have patients with, uh, with of course, with, um, with lymphomas, uh, and you get biological samples of all sorts from them, and then you treat them. And then after seeing who recovers, so with the patients, you see which patients are sensitive to drug and which patients are not. Then you look at the samples and you try to figure out what molecular signature defines the ones that did recover and the ones that didn't. And you use that to improve uh, the treatment in the successive. Okay. Then we
2: design a second trial
0: based on what you learned. Yes.
2: As an example, uh, our, in our pre- previous clinical trial, we, we have now identified that this circulating tumor DNA, tumor burden matters for the patients. And now the next uh, step after working in the laboratory for a few years is to go back and, and use this information and uh, stratify the patients or, or, or ask this question, is it really meaningful if we treat those patients uh, differently so that's uh our way of thinking
1: um and just kind of to to finish off i i was wondering like what you you mentioned how interesting I- how interested you are in in lymphoma and you mentioned this like novel technique um what exactly is what what makes you so interested and so passionate about about this like it's it's always it's always funny to see, like, everyone gives different answers of how they ended up doing that research. Like, what brought you to um, to where you are now?
2: Oh, what a question. What brought me where am I now? Um,
1: I don't mean to cause an existential crisis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> too late, Tomas, too late.
2: <laughs> well, uh, well... I don't know. I have just been uh, always uh, since I, I I have a background from from the lab, and then I just at some point decided I I want to be a clinician, but then I was really not well there when when it was uh, not about molecules. So I needed to to do both, and there I ended up uh, doing uh, being a clinician who is totally excited about molecules and now uh, i i think i am uh at the point where uh where where these these uh two uh, interests meet each other so i can actually do both it makes me very happy to see when i can treat a patient who who is benefiting from the therapy that has has been um kind of, uh, or it is the outcome of, of something that we have in this, this context, I have to say, Nordic lymphoma Group, designing together. So, and then what, what is also really exciting to combine clinical work and doing research is, is to, to, to see that actually we can find new uh, ways to look at the, the disease, which have not existed before, and uh, and most of all, it's it's really fun to work with young people. So that is also also the maybe the one of the most important things here.
1: I'm glad to hear that.
2: So isn't usually so? As far as I understand,
0: it's not obvious then that a physician also has a background or anyway an understanding of the molecular part. It's not that common for physicians.
2: Well. No, it's not that common and it's probably also a little bit madness uh, to do both (laughs) because then you realize that that's what you do. You you work with the patients and then you work in the lab and, and that's actually two jobs to combine.
0: That's true. But I mean, honestly... It feels to me like this is the winning approach, right? Have, like when you treat patients, do not forget what patients are made of mm-hmm. or what you know everyone mm-hmm. is made of.
2: But then also one, one more thing in, in the icon, I think one of the big aims is to try to, to make clinicians to meet uh, basic scientists. So that, that, is, that is actually needed and, and that is very useful. So, not one person can do it, one person cannot do everything. So, I think we, we can do much more and, and, and reach much more if we combine basic or combine basic research and, and clinical knowledge.
0: Totally agree. Couldn't agree more. I mean, as a, a non clinical researcher myself or wanna be one, just a PhD student so far yet. Uh, but yeah, no, I completely agree. Uh, For me, this is like the main interesting thing now, like from what you said, is this need for more interaction, more um, collaboration Mm -hmm. between researchers uh, and physicians, because apparently it's not obvious, it's not common that physicians actually have a, 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 a deep understanding of what's happening in the cells, in the, uh, at the molecular level. So, but also, um,
2: also other way around, that the basic scientists don't understand what is happening in the clinic.
0: No, that is so true. Myself, I mean, so many friends of mine, knowing that I'm a neurobiologist and that I do research on, on neurobiology, they ask me about diseases and how to treat diseases. As a you know, as informative, they don't come and ask me for medical advice, of course. But they ask for information. Most of the time, I have no idea when it comes to clinical informations. I have no idea how to treat multiple sclerosis or something that I can maybe tell you a bit of what research knows about it and how it works but no idea how to treat it so yeah that is absolutely true like a bidirectional communication between researchers and uh, and physicians thank you so much Sipa is there is is there anything you want to add to this Tomas
1: no i just to thank you Sipa thanks a million for
0: you're satisfied
1: yeah yeah like it's it's been it's been a pleasure to have you here uh, thanks a million for all your information and uh uh yeah or your all your knowledge on on the topic
2: uh thank you for both of you i i actually enjoyed talking with you it's
0: great news we are not the only ones who enjoy that <laughs> excellent <laughs> really uh yeah i agree thank you for the giving us you know a nice view of what science is actually doing about and how we're trying science is trying to improve the treatments so thank you very much for this uh thank you for our listeners um Keep looking out, like check out the new, the next episodes. In two weeks from now, we will release a new episode still from the TSB Icon series. It will be about personalized cancer care where we will be interviewing Dr. Anina Ferchila. So that's it. I would say thank you, Tomas. Thank you, Sirpa. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I'm Giuliano Di Dio. This was the Science Basement Podcast. See you in the next episode.
1: Bye. Thank you.
0: Goodbye. If you liked this episode, give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice and don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by The Science Basement, a science communication organisation based in Helsinki, Finland. If you're interested in getting involved or being interviewed, get in touch at podcast at the science